What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to episode 16 of Star Wars Beneath Twin Suns, a massive breakdown podcast. We have a fantastic episode for you tonight. Kind of a bittersweet episode. We are concluding Rebels with season four. And uh, I just literally, right before we started watching it, I just got finished with the finale. I think you just got finished with the finale as well. And, and I remembered how good it was. Uh, but to be totally honest, it was better the second time. And it may just be recency bias here. But that finale was emotionally charged it was a very weighty finale i think every bit uh every bit as emotionally charged as siege of mandalore really Um, i mean i was watching it and i've already seen it before so it wasn't like anything was a surprise to me but i was still struck by how good of a finale it really was yeah i think honestly i kind of had forgotten how well they put a capstone on the season without necessarily closing out the possibility of future stories about these characters. Like it, it felt complete and it felt like, you know, what had happened so far to, um, I think just about every original character in rebels. I, you know, they, they had sort of like finished the story so far, but that's what it felt like. It felt like, here's the end of the story so far. Maybe we'll see them again someday. Which as of now, we know for a fact, we will be seeing them again Indeed. because the whole Ahsoka, the whole Ahsoka series is supposed to deal with her uh, searching out Thrawn and Ezra. And I'm sure Sabine will make an appearance in that as well. Um, yeah, it was kind of the exact opposite of the way Clone Wars originally ended. If you guys will recall, Clone Wars originally ended season five on a cliffhanger. It just got kind of unceremoniously canceled by Disney Um, They had another three seasons planned out and it just didn't end up happening. And so Clone Wars kind of ended just full stop. And I feel like Filoni learned from that and was like, we're not doing that with Rebels. When Rebels is done, we are concluding the story. We're wrapping it all up. We'll leave a door open to to possibly revisit in the future. But we are making this a conclusion to a story. And someone even asked him uh, at, at one of the Star Wars Celebration panels, like, hey, how would you feel about doing more Rebels? And he's like, there's no reason to do more Rebels. Like we told a complete story start to finish. Um, there may be different stories with those characters, but the story of Rebels is done. And it really does feel like that in the fourth season. Um, it just, geez, I, I've got to say that it's up there with season two of Rebels. It's up there with season seven of Clone Wars, season five of Clone Wars. I, it starts off a little, not, not incredibly strong. It doesn't start off with like a, a 10 arc right out of the gate, but I got to say like at least the last seven episodes of the season are i would rate every single one of them at least a nine and there are probably two masterpieces in there as well it was it was very it was a very good season um i think there's something about this season where um it was almost exclusively new characters um, original characters uh, and, and characters who maybe had existed in Star Wars, but not in like canon visual media. Um, and I think for that reason, um, because a lot of my love of Star Wars, you know, to be honest, is rooted in nostalgia. It didn't have the same sort of uh, like long time. It, it didn't have that nostalgia effect. I think it lacked some of that power. Um, but I think given time, it will gain that power. I think I'll rewatch this in, in 20 years. Um, and it'll have a lot more emotional weight at that point. And uh, 
I'll also, the the animation will probably be a lot more difficult to deal with at that point, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. But I say that, but I I've rewatched uh, animated stuff from the '90s, and I didn't hate it all of it anyway. No, it, so it ages in a certain way, yeah, right. Like it ages in a nostalgic way, almost itself. Yeah, we're like, oh, look how uh, quaint the animation was. Yep. twenty years ago. Yep, yeah. Um, Man, it was. Uh, I guess we should probably just hop right into it. Obviously, first we gotta thank the patrons. Remember, guys, uh, without the patrons, you would not be hearing this episode. Also, announcement time: we have spun Beneath Twin Suns off into its own show, so it now has its own feed. It is no longer going to. After this episode, this is going to be the last episode that's going to be on the Massive Breakdowns main feed. Uh, we'll kind of leave it there as an announcement to people who are listening. <laughs> Hey, if you guys want to listen in the future, you need to go find the Beneath Twin Suns main feed. It is now its own feed. It is on Spotify. It's on Apple Podcasts. It's pretty much everywhere that you would normally listen to podcasts. Pretty much anywhere you can listen to Beneath Twin Suns. Or anywhere you would listen to Beneath Twin Suns normally on the Massive Breakdown feed, you should be able to listen to it now, but it will be on its own feed. So starting in about a week Probably we might give it seven days. We might give it two weeks. I'm going to go back and I'm going to remove all of the Beneath Twin Suns episodes off the Massive Breakdown feed, except for this one, which I'll leave up for probably probably till the end of the year. Uh, and then moving out from here on exclusively, we're going to be doing them just on the Beneath Twin Suns main feed. And the reason being because when Boba Fett comes out, Book of Boba Fett comes out, we want to try to do more. We might do a weekly episode. We haven't really figured it out yet, but we didn't want to clutter up the Massive Breakdowns feed. Uh, so it's going to be off on its own thing. So. That being said, please, please, please go to that feed and leave us a review on that feed uh, because we are basically starting this podcast over from scratch on a brand new feed. Yep. And so it it basically, uh, we have to rediscover the whole audience, right? And that's really hard to do when there's no reviews. Um, so please, if you can, leave us a review on that feed. That would help us out immensely. And uh, and besides that, yeah, I mean, big moves for the show. Absolutely. And I think uh, we probably want to go ahead and uh, into the show notes, just drop a link from this episode so that you can find the new feed for Beneath Twin Suns. Um, we're we're pretty excited about the future of uh, of both of our shows right now, um, and I think I think this is going to be good for both of them. I think Beneath Twin Suns is ready to stand on its own. We've had a ton of fun talking Star Wars so far, and looking forward to 2022. There is so much great stuff coming out we hope it's going to be great uh if it's not i guess we'll tell you but um at least we'll tell you what we think about it you know um yeah it's it's going to be very exciting like you said we don't want to to continue to kind of clutter up the destiny feed uh people are there to listen to destiny and that's what we'll give them and people are going to be here to listen to star wars so very excited. Thank you again to our sponsors and our patrons for their generous support, making this all possible. Um, this is something that we, you know, might not have done if we were just uh, doing this without any financial backing, because it is something that, that we do have to pay for. Um, and thank goodness it is paid for. So, yeah, the good news is we'll be able to upgrade from SoundCloud, which is not it. SoundCloud has been a loyal hosting service. It has, it has worked well for the six years we've done the show. Uh, but there are some severe limitations to it, mostly that we couldn't separate feeds, which is why they were grouped together in the first place. Yep. Uh, and secondarily, that they still they were not allowing us to determine the category that our podcast shows would go in. So that was also kind of unfortunate. But now we can do all that. It's all good. So 
Massive breakdowns will also stay on SoundCloud hosting till the end of the year. And then at the end of the year, we're going to swap it over to the new hosting service as well. I haven't decided. I think we might still post the shows on SoundCloud just because I think there's about like, I don't know. I want to say like five or 6% of our listener base actually listens on SoundCloud, which is kind of an amazing number. So uh, we'll probably continue to post the shows there for those people, but the main feed is going to cycle over to a new to a new hosting service. So that is it for our housekeeping for Beneath Twin Suns. We can hop right into our favorite arcs of the season. It's kind of hard. We were talking about this earlier because when you really look at it, outside of the first two arcs, which are standalone-ish arcs, um, the entire rest of the season is like one big arc. And you can divide... It's all one story that's being told. It's the return to Lothal and the eventual liberation of Lothal. It's all one story. It's kind of like the entire show as a whole compressed down because that's really what it's always been about, right? Like, it's always been about the characters, but Lothal is almost a character in itself. Um, So it was kind of hard. We couldn't really... If we're being honest with ourselves, there weren't really any standalone episodes this season because we were talking about the four episodes in the middle that kind of deal with the the, fly, the Defender TIE Fighter. Like, if this were Clone Wars, that would just be an arc. Like, that would be a four-episode arc. And then starting with Jedi Knight and going all the way down to World Between Worlds, like, that's one big arc. If you were to watch all those episodes with no transition in between them, it would play, like, one long episode. There wouldn't be a weird jump where you're like, wait, hold on, what happened? We've changed stories here. And then the last two episodes of the season are an arc, and the first four episodes are all two arcs. So it's like there's no standalone episodes here. So I guess we're just going to pick our two favorite arcs and our two least favorite arcs. But at the same time, great season. There's not really a bad episode in the season. It's very similar to season two, and that there's not a single episode in the season that I'd probably give below a seven. Yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty fair to say. Um, I this was I I want to say this is probably the most consistent episode quality we've seen from a star wars animated series um i think i would i would say even compared to like you know the more recently like the the first season of bad batch i think the episode quality here in terms of just consistently being a good episode even if it wasn't a great episode i think this season wins um is just across the board very very strong i think a big part of that is that they were telling bigger stories in this season. Um, they weren't trying to do a lot of 20 to 35-minute one-offs, which sometimes are great and sometimes uh, feel a little bit just like, well, okay, that was, that was a story. It happened, but what was, its, uh, what was its impact on the larger picture? And, you know, Star Wars comes from the movie universe where everything is part of a bigger story. And so I think a lot of times when they when they aim bigger, when they shoot for those more continuous storylines, it gives a little bit more of that traditional nostalgic Star Wars feel. Sometimes the one-off episodes don't quite reach that mark. Um so this season is is I think we talked about it it's you could almost call it like one big arc. Um you could easily break it down into say, about five story arcs told across 16 episodes. Um, and I think that's probably how we're going to treat it This episode, uh, in this episode where we talk about it is more or less as five story arcs. Yeah. Um, I think if you were to take out Heroes of Mandalore, which is the opening arc, 
and In the Name of the Rebellion, which is the follow-up arc, if you were to put those at the end of Season 3, neither one of them are bad arcs on their own. Siege of Heroes of Mandalore I actually really enjoy, right? They're good arcs on their own, but if you were to start with Episode 5, which is the occupation, and just watch through to the conclusion, I think it would be the best uh, season of Star Wars TV ever. Starting with the occupation, which is when they return to Lothal and going all the way through to Family Reunion Farewell, that stretch of episodes right there, which is 10 episodes or uh, 11 episodes, fantastic, fantastic TV. If you were to narrow it down even further and you were to go from Rebel Assault to Family Reunion Farewell, which is really like the finale or like the lead up to the finale arc and then the finale arc, every single one of those episodes in my mind is a nine or above. It is as close to perfect of a story as you can get it is it's like you said it benefits from not being compressed into a bunch of tiny episodes it benefits from the fact that really like it's a six hour arc and you're watching the whole thing it 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 makes me feel like uh what they wanted to do with dark disciple and clone wars and they didn't get to do it but it was an eight episode arc dark disciple was and i think they finally got a chance to like stretch their legs here and be like, look, we're not going to do these one-off stories. There's not going to be a single bit of filler here. We're going to tell a story from start to finish. And if it takes us 10 episodes to do it, then it takes us 10 episodes to do it. And they did, starting with the occupation, working all the way down. It's fantastic. So that being said, um, I actually think we should kind of start inverted here and start with the arcs that we didn't like as much uh, and move to the arcs that we liked a lot because I feel like that'll almost go chronologically through the season. Okay. So... I gotta say, my least favorite arc was actually the Saw Gerrera one. Um, I knew it. The In the Name of the Rebellion <laughs> arc. Uh, number one, this is what you were talking about when you said that they destroy a Kyber Crystal. Like, this was the idea that they had for Season 6 of Clone Wars that they didn't get to do. Yep. Where there's, like, a Kyber Crystal being transported, and they overload it, and it destroys the ship. Honestly, like, I understand where they went with Saw Gerrera. They had to make him link in with Rogue One, and so they're, like, pushing him more and more extreme as as the show goes on but the biggest problem that i have with it is the same problem i had with the geonosis arc that they don't learn shit about the actual death star and so there's this whole two episode arc which is a fine arc on its own but if you just removed it if you just plucked this arc out of the season you would lose nothing pretty much nothing at all other than further reinforcement that Mon Mothma and Saul Gerrera are like polar opposites in terms of how they treat stuff. But the problem is, is I, I empathize with Saul Gerrera more than Mon Mothma. Mon Mothma like annoys me because she's so passive. So I think I firmly disagree with you about, about that. Um, I enjoyed this arc. I think for all the reasons you didn't. Uh, <laughs> um, so I think that in the name of the rebellion actually is, uh, the best portrayal of Mon Mothma in any Star Wars media that I've seen. Outside of maybe, like, that she was in, like, the original uh, trilogy. You know, like, but she's got a bit role there. She's just a, she's an extra. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least she's, at least she's at that point committed to fighting the Rebellion. Uh, and here, I think, you know, uh, I'll give, I'll give Guerrero credit he does manage to goad her into showing some passion. Um, and I think that's, that's about the best that we get out of her in Rebels, um, is that she, she does have principles, and she's willing to stand on those principles. She's not just... Um, she's not entirely passive. She's just not necessarily fighting for the same principles that 
everyone thinks she should be. Um, so I'll, I'll give her credit there. Uh, as far as the whole Death Star thing, I think what's great about this is, A, like we know that they can't find out about the Death Star yet because they find out in Rogue One. Um, however, what this, what this arc does do is it ties that chase for information on what the Empire's secret superweapon is into Rebels, and it shows us something that Rogue One doesn't really have time to do. It shows us that they have been chasing this information for years, literally years. That, and it, it kind of it gives it a little bit bigger, um, bigger background than it had, right? We know, of course, that the Empire had to be working on the Death Star for honestly almost since before it was the empire like you have to wonder if if uh, palpatine started this project just in anticipation of winning as soon as he had the resources he needed from the senate he was like okay let's start building a death star um he, he did he started doing research and pulling the pieces together but he didn't begin assembling them right. until the republic fell but yeah he knew about the death star and was planning the Death Star in the middle of the Clone Wars. It was a, it was a Geonosian weapon. It was a Geonosian concept, That's right. which it shows That's right. in the prequels. You're right. Right? Yeah. Uh, I I occasionally forget that bit. But yes, yeah, so so this has been in the works for decades. Um and he you know, he's he's kept it he's kept it secret, he's kept it safe all this time. Um uh, and I, I really I mean, like that it takes the rebels a long time to get there. And we see some of the steps, and they're just kind of peppered in. And you're right; you could you could view it from the point of view that like it doesn't necessarily affect the current rebel storyline. And I sympathize with that because I feel that way sometimes. However, I do appreciate that it ties into the larger Star Wars universe in a really meaningful way. We see that Saw's extremism has its has its price, but occasionally it also has its usefulness. And and so you see him as this this flawed character. Um, where you can't con- completely condemn his point of view. He's got a valid reason for being the way that he is, and he does get results at times. But on the other hand, you also have to sympathize, I think, with Mon Mothma's point of view, trying to take the, the larger view that, yes, you know, we can, we can go and blow up uh, any given installation, but that's going to result in, A, them just building another, and B, them tightening security and making it that much harder the next time. And so sometimes it makes sense to take the passive approach and to let them think they have the upper hand. I, 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 see, I see it both ways. Uh, I, I totally understand. Mon Mata has a, has a fair point there when she's specifically talking about the dish. So yeah. for those of you who don't know, the series starts with them finding out about a listening post that the Imperials have, and they want to go tap the listening post. Guerrero wants to go destroy the listening post. So they send the ghost out there. The ghost tries to tap it. Things go awry as they do. We actually get Commander Titus back, who is now Captain. Uh, he has been shuffled around because he keeps losing these installations he's on. Now he's the captain of a cruiser, which is like his final demotion. He actually ends up getting killed this episode, so that's the end of Captain Titus as far as it goes. Demoted all the way from Admiral down to Captain. Very very sad story for him. Uh, continually frustrated by Ezra and the Ghost crew. Um, but Saul Guerrero shows up and basically is like, yep, we're destroying this thing. Like, yeah. It's too late. He picks up Sabrina and Ezra and takes them away and is like, oh yeah, we'll drop your kids off later. Like They're going to come help us with something for a little bit. And, you know, they are on the same side, even though they 
they disagree on stuff. So they kind of just let it go. And they're like, all right, whatever. He'll bring him back at some point in time. Um, he's basically tracking this information that the, that the empire has something of great value being transported out into the middle of, you know, nowhere in space. And he's questioning, why are they dragging it out there? He thinks that whatever they're building is at this rendezvous location. It turns out to not be at the rendezvous location. So they go through the process and, and it ends up being another dead end, but I guess it's one step closer to what they eventually figure out in rogue one. And I, I accept that. And I understand that. But to me, for the story of the ghost crew and for the story of rebels, it felt like I wasn't satisfied with the conclusion they came to and the characters, the ghost crew specifically just drops it afterwards. And I understand they have bigger things to deal with. They have to go deal with Lothal and everything. Uh, but to me, it was unsatisfying. And it was also weird to me that the crew was just like, oh, well, I guess that's it. Like, that's the end of the story. We don't know. Like, we didn't figure out pretty much anything other than they had a giant kyber crystal. We don't know why they had it. And like, nobody shows any curiosity as to figure out what in my mind is like, you guys should be pulling that string to unravel that string. And Saul's the only one who seems to care. And again, that's why I sympathize so much more with Saul. And Mon Mothma, yes, this is the first time she shows emotion. But she is so, so much of an impediment and a roadblock to what the Rebels are trying to do as a whole. And yeah, she's got this huge big picture that she's trying to deal with. But like, dude, she almost gets the Rebels totally screwed on Lothal by not authorizing them to go in there. She almost sacrifices them. She finally lets just the Ghost go. And she won't send them any backup. And even when Thrawn is gone and is has left Lothal for a period of time, which actually is covered by the book Treason, Thrawn Treason. I just started reading that. It actually takes place... Like, there's part of the episode where he gets called away by Tarkin is written into the book. It's a scene in the book. And it starts there and then it branches off. That's awesome. So you see why Thrawn was gone for, for like... And what it is is that Krennic, director Krennic, was pulling funding away from the TIE Defender project to go to Stardust, which is the Death Star. And Thrawn has to go and basically convince the Emperor, like, hey, don't cut the funding for the TIE Defender. We need that. And he ends up being correct. Like, if they had kept the TIE Defender, Stardust is what ended up dooming the Empire. And he foresaw that, but obviously Thrawn disappears at the end of Rebels. So it's a really neat tie-in there. Um, Like I said, it's not a bad arc by any stretch of the imagination. I just, I find Mothma's continued uh, deliberation and hesitancy to throw weight behind what obviously we consider to be worthwhile causes because we've been watching the show the whole time um it just i don't know it's very it's very it's very much what i see what anakin was frustrated with with the republic to begin with that there's a lot of deliberation and there's a lot of slowness and there's a lot of let's think about this let's think about this let's think about this and there's and they don't move to action quick enough and mon mothma is a vestige of that now she's a good person and she's a protagonist but she has a lot of the frustrations that come with a bureaucracy is i guess kind of the way i look at her so i i get where you're coming from there and i i think we want to move on to the next arc here because we do want to try to actually do the whole season in one episode for once what was your what was your least favorite so i'm gonna i'm gonna continue the controversy here and break your heart by saying that that for this season the arc that i was least invested in was heroes of mandalore uh, it's it's fair i disagree but it is fair <laughs> i would have to say that it might it might be the second weakest arc um and and so there are a couple of reasons for that um one it really felt like it had nothing to do with the rest of the season and the rest of the season was so intimately tied together that it just kind of throws me off that at the beginning we're we're doing mandalorian things and then the rest of the season we're doing the things um for the most part. And 
it, it felt like this maybe should have been something that should have been resolved in season three. I mean, season three was already really long. So I, I know that they had to like not do some things in there and, and they needed to do some things here and it was a good time to resolve it. Um, looking really at the show, feel like the conclusion to season three, though, yeah. didn't it? Like it, it felt like it would have been a good finale for season three. I, you know, zero hour was such a good finale, but I feel like it should have maybe been, Toward the end of season three, at least the build up to zero hour or something. I don't. I don't know. Um, could it like it, chronologically? Could it have fit before zero hour? Uh, would it have made? I don't. They. I don't they would have had to make some changes. I, yeah. But anyway, the point is, for me, it just felt like it didn't really fit with the rest of the season. Um, that said, I, it's not like I didn't like it. I enjoyed it. Uh, I thought it was cool to get some insight into Sabine's background. Um, you know, it's really interesting to see, you know, her, her mother is a warrior, her father is an artist, so you see kind of some of the, the influences. They're a little on the nose, perhaps, but um, it's good to see those influences um, in her background, especially since we are almost certainly going to see her in the upcoming Ahsoka series. Very excited about that. But um, the other thing, so I both liked and didn't like the uh the weapon that she designed uh it was it was a really cool idea and certainly it was it's the kind of thing that makes sense where they might have presented it to her as a challenge and as a young person you're okay with kind of being a rebel you know a, a rebel in terms of like going against what your parents would approve of and um and it it certainly makes sense in terms of being a motivation for her to leave and so I think it makes a lot of sense there. Um, what It's always a little less convincing for me when somebody can spend five minutes with a device and alter it like intrinsically in some way. Um, but it, it's a Star Wars trope. It's a sci-fi trope that somebody can spend five minutes tinkering and change the way something works. Um, well, I, fig- I found it was like she was just changing a variable, right? She was just changing what it was tracking to. You know, if you just swap one element, it, it, yeah. it was a little bit like, yeah, okay, that's, but Sabine's always shown as being like, you know, this technical genius and she can do anything. So I, I batted an eye at it, but I, I let it pass pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I kind of felt the same way. Um, it, see, the thing is, I liked a lot of things about this episode. Uh, I like at the end that we get Bo-Katan's kind of the completion of Bo-Katan's backstory um, where Sabine gives her the dark saber, which is why, uh, you know, and we, when we see Bo-Katan in the Mandalorian, she's like, you can't just give me the dark saber. Like that doesn't work. Now, it, it, it shows this sort of Mandalorian superstition um, that I love because they're, they're this sort of like technologically advanced super soldiers they're all about all of these, you know, gadgets and devices, but then they also have this spiritual element to them um, where they believe very deeply in the past and in the power of the past and the power of ancestry. Um, and so it's this, this is sort of setting up Bo-Katan to understand that the legacy of the Darksaber is one um, of violence and uh, that you, you have to, uh, to truly prove you're the strongest in order to be deserving of power. You can't just 
have someone say that you should be. Um, and so I, I loved that part. Uh, but but overall, I still felt like it was, for me, the weakest arc. It was definitely out of place. I really liked the idea of the weapon because it it had to be something like... Sabine has obviously been racked with this guilt the entire series, and it never really explained why... It explained that she left, and she left to save Mandalore, but it never explained why she left to save Mandalore or how until this, and you see how powerful the weapon actually is and what it can do. And the fact that it's not even operating at full power because she basically sabotaged it before she left and they've only barely been able to get it functional over a small area. Yeah. And now you see, I felt like it was something worthy of the amount of guilt that she was feeling. I would agree. It, It is an incredibly lethal, dangerous weapon and it massacres her family's clan, basically. Luckily her, you know, her actual family her mother and brother are on the outskirts of it so they're just injured by it it doesn't actually kill them but it kills pretty much everyone else and you see what a dangerous weapon it is so i really like that i thought it was it's hard when you build something up for four seasons and really specifically last season they spent a lot of time working on it yeah it's hard to make that payoff worth it and i thought they did a great job with that now i entirely understand what you're saying that it doesn't fit with the rest of the season because it really doesn't but i agree with you i thought it was a good conclusion to the mandalore the Mandalore arc that had been present in all of rebels. I thought it was a good conclusion to that. I would agree with that. Yeah. Well, um, I guess then there's two more arcs left at this point in time. I feel like we might as well just go chronologically. I I think we should because save the best for last at this point. Yeah. So, so really, if you really want to look at it, like if you have time to sit there for like five hours and watch everything one way through, you should watch the occupation all the way through to the end of the series all at once, because really it's one giant story. It's their return to Lothal. And like I said earlier, the eventual freedom of Lothal, it's all one part, but it starts with like a four episode arc. That's the occupation flight of the defender kindred and crawler commandeers. Um, if it weren't for Flight of the Defender and Kindred, which are the two middle episodes, I probably would have picked this as the weakest arc. The Occupation is almost an entire episode that is the functional equivalent of an establishing shot. It's like establishing the situation that Lothal is in. It's establishing how they get back onto Lothal. Uh, but I just found it to be like uh, just a very passive episode almost it's it's talking and then it's talking on a ship and then they get through the the blockade and it just it was <laughs> i wasn't really like enamored with this one episode in particular i would say that this is probably the weakest standalone episode if we if we I took just crawler commandeers might might compete really with the final episode yeah okay. I, I thought crawler so i thought it was bookended by two Probably the two weakest episodes of the season and the occupation and crawler commandeers. The reason why I think the occupation is a little bit edging out crawler commandeers is because I did like seeing what Lothal had become. I liked the, in particular, the shot of them arriving to it and the world is just polluted and blackened and burnt. And you see that like they've been away from Lothal for a good bit of time. And since they've left, things have gotten so, so much worse. And so I like that a lot, whereas Crawler Commandeers was very much like almost a bottle episode where everything happened on that one little ship. I, I love and, I love those. That's like classic yeah. 
that's that's like classic greek drama one day one location ah i love it yeah. um it, that's that's my uh my inner lit nerd coming out so uh we'll tuck that back away I, <laughs> the so the the two episodes have different things going for them i think the occupation for atmosphere is quite good um but for things happening is is bad uh and Trawler Commandeers, I think there there was an opportunity in Crawler Commandeers to actually do a lot of the things that the occupation had already done, and so they kind of glossed over it, but it shows sort of how the Empire got there. Uh, but one thing I liked about Crawler Commandeers was, was action and a little bit of levity in an otherwise very serious final season. Um, there's not a lot of levity in Rebel Season 4. Uh, the the atmosphere is pretty dark, pretty serious, almost the entire time. Uh, a lot of a lot of villains die. Uh, a lot of heroes, uh, you know, don't come out the same uh, if they come out at all. And mm-hmm. it's it's very very dark. And so then, right right in the middle. In the actual middle, episode 8 of a 16-episode season, there's just this sort of silly little, like, we're, we're taking over this ore crawler uh, episode. And uh, for, me, for me, it kind of worked as like a fulcrum where you have this, this dark, this dark, very serious uh, storyline leading up to it, and then a dark, very serious storyline following from it. Um, but right in the middle, you just get this bright spot. Yeah. I, I thought it was, uh, I don't know. Did you, did you appreciate Seavor, which was the captain just getting tossed into the, I mean, I guess he fell. Right. But that seemed kind of brutal to me that they like threw him into an oven. Basically. I mean, he did it to himself by fighting him, but I was like, Seavor is just a captain defending his ship. And they just like, toss him into an oven and then they laugh about it ezra has like a quip after he falls into an oven i was like that's pretty dark that's fair um some of the humor some of the humor in star wars is pretty dark sometimes though right we've all seen the mandalorian uh (laughs) we all know exactly what i'm talking about right there um if you don't we'll, we'll have to talk about that but i was okay with it uh Rebels has a darker edge to it, and Ezra has a darker edge to him as a Jedi. And, you know, ultimately, what it comes down to, I think, is that you can't protect... You can't protect uh, somebody who's on the wrong side of the fight from themselves. Um, you can try, and they tried repeatedly. Uh, basically, the, they spent almost the entire episode trying to get that captain to just, like stay put and and keep his mouth shut um and i think like i don't know how many times like five times basically they have to like recapture him or like try to put him into more secure constraints and they cannot and finally it just goes south for him at that point yeah i was i was all right with it but anyway i feel like we're talking too much about an episode that was just sort of like 
ultimately this this episode crawler commanders was commandeers was the definition of episodes that you could have taken out without any major ill effects although they did end up having the crawler as part weren't they supposed to use it for part of their assault and then they ended up not and then it ends up just sitting at their base and gets destroyed in the final yeah. arc of the season yep absolutely so it it's the definition i think of like <laughs> uh like failing to fire chekhov's gun um they they loaded a gun they put it on the mantle early on and then later on you're expecting someone to get shot with it and nothing, no one does and then it just like falls into the fire so um it's it's a little pointless i won't i won't defend it uh, i'd say it's it's certainly one of the two weakest standalone episodes i just mm-hmm. i enjoyed it more than i enjoyed the occupation well, the two middle episodes, though, I thought were were pretty strong. I agree. As far as they went, um, it's Flight of the Defender, and then Kindred, and I actually really liked both of those. Um, I didn't have any issue at all. Of course, you know, you know me. Anything that involves flying or aviation, I'm gonna enjoy. And Flight of the Defender, I really, really liked. I thought it was a very smart episode. I liked that they stole the Defender. I liked the scene of Thrawn shooting at the Defender with his pistol while everyone else scatters. And he's just standing there firing at it. And uh, and then I like that they were smart enough that they were like, all right, well, we've let him go. Now sabotage it. Like, knock, knock the panels off. Which you'd think Sabine would be used to at this point. You'd think she would understand that all TIE fighters have those, uh, those built-in detachable wings that are remote-controlled. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was definitely a good episode. Uh, you know, maybe they were hoping that it being a prototype, they didn't have the kill switch. But of course, that's... I mean, that's got to be the first thing that Thrawn install, has installed. So, curiously here, did you know that Ruck is voiced by Warwick Davis, who is the uh, the short, he, he's the, the little person um, that was in Harry Potter as like all of the dwarves and as Professor Flitwick and stuff like that. And I'm pretty sure he was actually the, uh, oh God, he, he he's been in like every single of the new star Wars episodes. Um, he's basically just like the most famous little person in Hollywood, I guess, besides Peter Dinklage. Well, he was, he was Willow. Uh, so I, I did not actually catch that. He voiced Rook. Um, yeah, but he's, he's phenomenal. And he was, he was wicked in return of the Jedi. I yeah. guess one of the little Ewoks. Yep. Right. He was, so I thought that was pretty funny. He, he was the, uh, princess Leia's friend. Yeah. So See, he he was. I thought, the, I thought that was a nice. Nod. The lead Ewok. Um, yeah. Apparently, it's the first time in a Star Wars media that he has voiced a character that was not uh, that whose name did not start with W. Every other character he's voiced in uh, or performed as in Star Wars has started with a W. That was one of the trivia things. Um, huh. But yeah, I mean, I, I liked I liked Flight of the Defender uh, a lot. I, I thought it was pretty smart. I thought. I really like the part where Thrawn is like, you know what? Let's see how good the defender really is. Uh, scramble, scramble the normal ties. See if the normal ties can shoot it down. And obviously they can't. And he's like, man, if a pilot who's as basic as Sabine can do this, then think of what our train pilots will be able to do. Yeah. In it. So I like that he uses it. Even when something that's kind of unexpected happens, he very immediately figures out the best way to handle it. And you'll see this, but the only way to beat Thrawn is basically to do something entire to do something he can't understand. And they make a point of explaining that the one thing he doesn't understand is the Force. He believes that the Force can only be used as a weapon, 
And because of that, he he's unable to comprehend that the force can be used in other ways that aren't directed at taking power. Um, and that, of course, inevitably leads to his downfall. Um, but I thought this was a really, really good episode. And man, Governor Price is just like front and center the entire last season. Uh, she plays a huge role in the finale arc. But here she is again, too, standing next to Thrawn at the airbase and and kind of giving the a little bit of the the differences between Price and Thrawn, where Thrawn is very calm, cool, collected. Price is very emotional, gets angry very quickly, wants revenge a lot of times. I mean, was there really anything you didn't like about Flight of the Defender? Uh, I can't really say that there that there was. Um, you know, from from the main plot uh, all the way up to kind of the uh, the finale. There, they're they're hiding the hyperdrive, uh, and Ezra catches those glimpses of the uh, the Loth Wolf. Um, before uh, getting his uh, his sort of mysterious encounter that that sets up the second half of the season, it's uh, it's all in all just a really really strong episode. What about uh, what about Kindred? Kindred follows it up. They're trying to escape with the hyperdrive that they've recovered from the crashed Tie Defender. Uh, this is when I think we first get introduced to Ruck. Where yep. Thrawn sends him down to basically hunt them down, and, and Ruck proves himself very capable, uh, very capable tracker, very capable assassin. Um, he locates the rebel camp. There basically is a race against time to get the hyperdrive installed uh, in in Ryder Azadi's U wing before the uh, before the Imperials get there. Um, and this is the first time where we start to think that maybe something is up with Kanan. Um, Kanan meets the Loth Wolf. He talks to it. This is when the first time I watched it, I thought that potentially Kanan was going to like ascend to be a full fledged Jedi master. I thought this was the beginnings of him, like you, you, like what Yoda does, where he basically becomes so attached to the Force that he almost leaves the the present behind. You know how they always like talk in riddles, and they're always just like, "Nope, this is what you have to do." And people just accept it because they're just like, well, he's one with the force. He knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Um, kind of like how we see Obi-Wan is in the original trilogy compared to how Obi-Wan is in the prequel trilogy. Mm-hmm. I thought the first time that this was probably the beginning of that, where he's communing with the Loth Wolves. He, he, he seems to be spending a lot more time meditating. You can tell that he wants to say something to Hera, but he keeps getting interrupted. Um, almost like he knows that the person he's about to become is very different than the person he is right now. Of course. <laughs> It ends up being something quite different than that. It does. But that's what I thought the first time I watched it. And I really liked that because I liked seeing what looked like Kanan taking the next steps. Go and Almost going backwards because obviously this is when we learn his real name is Caleb Doom. That was his Jedi name. Kanan Jarrus is an alias that he's taken on because he's been hunted for so long and he didn't want to be known as a Jedi. But the wolf, you know, comes up to him and basically says Doom. And Kanan's like, that's me. Yeah, it's uh Kindred is is a super trippy episode and it again it I think it it really finishes setting up um what is gonna be a fairly trippy second part of season four. Um it threw me for a huge loop. Uh and I almost I almost hate to talk about it too much, but uh, but I'm going to. 
talk away. Uh, well, spoilers, guys. Yeah. Like, you you got to know if we're talking about season four, it's spoilers. Yeah, major spoilers. Um, but when they when they sort of walk those, uh, you know, I, I, the only thing I can I can call them is those uh, kind of paths between worlds. Um, mm-hmm. It it was just like, what is going on? I thought I was watching Star Wars, and I feel like I met like the Led Zeppelin version of Star Wars here for a minute. Um, but it was also fun, uh, and I like how they sort of explain it because there's a huge, huge tie-in and callback to the Clone Wars in this season um, that that really makes it all kind of make a lot more sense. Um, and that I'm glad that they, that they kind of called back to you because it's something that I felt like needed more grounding in the broader universe. Um, because it was, it was a good episode, uh, or, or two episodes, I guess, in Clone Wars, right? The two or, oh, two or three. The, Mortis was three episodes. Three, okay. Um, so it was, it was a good three-episode arc in Clone Wars, but it was very much disconnected from a lot of the, the wider universe. And so I was, it was nice to see that there is a lot of history going on that that perhaps many Jedi were unaware of. You know, we can we can always wonder what Yoda knew being, you know, in his 800s. Um, well, but- there's also that that same disconnect is experienced in the community because a lot of the people who I've heard talk about Mortis arc in Clone Wars hated it because they thought it was so weird and so different but they don't understand like that's one of the last full things Lucas worked on. Lucas was the driving force behind the Mortis arc. He was the driving force behind Sunny Day in the Void. Lucas liked all that weird shit. His actual ideas for the force, he he never really was able to express them on the big screen because the technology wasn't necessarily there and it would have come off very, very weird in a feature length movie. But he's the one that wanted that stuff, that wanted the mystical nature to be explored. Filoni is doing that because that's what Lucas wanted. And you see it again in Clone Wars in season six when Yoda has his experiences. Yeah. Not with Mortis necessarily, but where he goes into the Force, Qui-Gon directs him, uh, beginning to put him on that process of learning how to become one with the Force and how to basically vanish. I really liked all that stuff. And then the fact that they brought it back in season four, I'm sure that that off put some people. But to me, it just fit It fit like a glove. I, I will admit, I was super thrown the first time I watched it by the Mortis arc. Um, it felt very alien to me. Um, but having gone through it, uh, two or three times now, um, and having watched the arc with, with, uh, you know, Yoda, um, and the, uh, I can never remember what they're called. The, the masks, essentially the, uh, the different emotions. Um, I, uh, I appreciate it more now. I feel like there is sort of. There's a little bit of that psychedelic uh, 60s and 70s sci-fi vibe where, you know, there are, there are all the things that you think you know about the Force and about the way that the universe is supposed to work. And then there's what's actually going on underneath the surface, which is so much stranger. And, you know, I don't know if you'd call it more wonderful, more terrible, both. It's... It's... Definitely stranger than what you expect. Depends, depends how you use it, right? Yeah. 
Palpatine wants to use it for horrible, horrible things. He wants to control the universe with it. Ezra uses it to try to save people that he loves. So it can be both things. I do want to point out, there's just one really awesome scene here that I wasn't sure if you scientifically had an issue with, but it was Hera jumping through the hangar to light speed and like blowing everything out of the hangar with her passage. Did you have an issue with that? Or was that like, because I know that you sometimes have issues with the light speed stuff. I thought that was badass, but again, I also thought the scene in, you know, The Last Jedi where they jumped the ship through the destroyer was badass. So it's like, was that something that you had an issue with or were you like, no, that's that's acceptable. The science the science backs it up. Uh I wasn't a huge fan of it. <laughs> um I think I kind of figured literally when I was watching it, I was like, I bet Kutch didn't like that. <laughs> yeah. So I I really, really dislike it when people try to um like a, a big part of what I like about Star Wars, it it's not Star Wars is not super realistic in terms of like, you know, if you were to take our actual future, like a thousand years from now, the the technology that we'll be using in space and the things that we might be doing, we're not going to have people flying fighter craft. That's the stupidest thing that we could possibly do in the real world. But in Star Wars, it's fine because that's what the universe is. Star Wars is like it's almost like an old fashioned future. Well, it does say a long time ago in a galaxy. And far, as long far away. as it's consistent with that, it's fine. But when they start trying to do like light speed weapons and and things that I, I just I have a problem with it because if you do light speed wrong, you end up like glossing over paradoxes and uh massive, massive questions about like why do we need a Death Star? We can just fly a starship into a planet and blow it up. Um, it's a lot cheaper. <laughs> Anyone can do it. And those are the questions that you don't want to ask while you're watching Star Wars because it makes everything feel pointless. And I, this was better than what they did in the movie, but not by oh, a yeah. lot. <laughs> I, I thought it made more sense because she's still in the physical world. She hasn't jumped to hyperspace yet, right? right. Like she's accelerating to make the jump to hyperspace so i didn't see an issue with it yeah other than there is some consternation as to whether you can accelerate that close to big ships but i think rebels has pretty much said that like you can accelerate as close as you want to big ships because the ghost has done it a number of times yeah i don't as long as it's not an interdict i i don't try to get too deep into real world physics when it comes to star wars i i'm more concerned with internal consistency in terms of star wars kind of following its own rules and when when people come in and do things that don't follow the rules that we've seen established to date. And hyperspace is, is very much a fuzzy area in terms of how long it takes to get places. It generally takes uh, about as long as the plot requires to get places in Star Wars. Um, but, you know, the big, pre- the big reason I have a problem with light speed skipping is that it seems to make... It, anyway, we're not going to go into light speed skipping. Light speed skipping 100% broke the like the canon way that light speed works it's literally Im- Im- supposed to be impossible you shouldn't be able to jump to light speed although that being said well, in rogue one they jump to light speed in atmosphere yeah right? i i think it's supposed to be highly ill-advised uh and unfortunately no one ever suffers the consequences of it which i think is why they felt like they could get away with it um yeah i i think we need somebody on screen trying to go to light speed hitting the cloud and just vaporizing uh <laughs> So anyways, um, we'll move on from the scientific discussion of what is and isn't possible because 
I think this probably skates by. Um, even if it makes me a little uncomfy. So we need to move to the next arc then, which is, again, like I said, I consider this a five episode arc. It starts with Rebel Assault, goes through Jedi Knight, Doom, Wolves in the Door, and A World Between Worlds. I think it is a fantastic five episode arc. The only reason I think it, it might actually be the strongest arc, even stronger than the finale. I think it is. I think it is. I think this might be the best story arc in Rebels. Uh, where it's very good. At, at least as far as uh, story arcs that are entirely focused on new characters, even though there are some some very important appearances by old characters. Um, so Rebel Assault basically serves the purpose of setting up. They believe that they're going to be able to attack the TIE Defender factory on Lothal. They stage an orbital attack. They get a bunch of Y-Wings and X-Wings through, or they think they do. But Thrawn being Thrawn has been waiting for them this entire time and is like, scramble the second fleet. And they destroy every X-Wing and every Y-Wing. They shoot them all down. Yeah. Basically completely putting a stop to it. Also, Volt Scaris, the, the main TIE Defender pilot, uh, dies here because he doesn't listen to Thrawn's orders and he gets he gets overzealous and he tries to kill Hera when Thrawn is luring Hera into a trap and the trap catches Scarus in it too, which then allows Hera to kill Scarus. So he's Thrawn is very disappointed that's the now the second time that someone has not listened to his orders and has cost themselves their life basically, the first one being Admiral Constantine. Yeah. Uh but I really liked Rebel Assault just because it shows how dangerous and how competent Thrawn is, but in a way where there's actual consequences. Every time before this, it was like Thrawn either let them win or would defeat them, but nothing necessarily really horrible happened. This time it wipes out their entire their entire attack squadron. Yeah. And Hera ends up being captured basically. Yeah, I think what we see here is that Thrawn has been taking their measure for some time. Um, and he thought he had their measure previously when he attacked their base. And unfortunately, circumstances beyond anyone's control uh, took that victory from him. And so he is he is far and away, like, he's he's far beyond the time where he's assessing them. And he now has their measure completely. And it is it is less than his. Uh, he is... Like like you said, he's working with um, imperial forces, right? Not not necessarily the cream of the crop, but simply the most loyal of the crop for the most part. And unfortunately, the most competent of them are often the least loyal in terms of following orders blindly, which is what costs him here uh, one good pilot. But even using just like pretty good pilots who are very loyal and pretty pretty okay soldiers who are very loyal. He crushes them. Yeah. Like, you know, that's that's how good Thrawn is. He can win with Imperial forces consistently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jedi with relative ease, too. Yeah. He, he's very he's very rarely surprised or caught off guard outside of force beings. Yep. Um, but um, it serves as the precursor to Jedi Knight, which, in my opinion, Jedi Knight is up there with Twilight of the Apprentice as the strongest episode in the series. Jedi Knight is one of my favorite episodes. It's one of my favorite stories in all of Star Wars. I absolutely love this episode. Kanan meditates, and actually there's really cool trivia. So also, by the way, uh, this was Ascension Part 1, was the working name for the script, and Doom, the following episode, was Ascension Part 2. So it definitely was part of an arc. But 
Um, he meditates, and while he's meditating, he hears Ezra's voice saying, you didn't prepare me for this, Kanan. And that actually doesn't happen until the next episode is when Ezra actually says that. So this was the point in time where you know that Kanan is is looking to the future, has foresight, and is seeing what happens and knows what his, his path is going to be. Now, the first time I was watching it, again... I was looking at him cutting off his hair, him shaving his face, him not wearing the mask as him like ascending to that next version of himself, him going back to the Jedi he was supposed to be. It completely caught me off guard. Huge spoilers, by the way. Massive spoilers. It completely caught me off guard when he died in the final scenes of the finale. Like, I knew Kanan wasn't there, and I thought that Kanan was going to die at some point, but I didn't think it was going to be midway through the season like he they all look like they're going to escape but he knows that he's where he needs to be like he made everything happen that's why he made Ezra be in charge of the plan that's why you know he was the one who went in to rescue Hera he got her the Calicori like he did all this stuff because he knew what was going to happen they're on top of the fuel depot and obviously Governor Price like an idiot destroys the fuel depot trying to kill them and he is so strong at this point in time he holds back the explosion and pushes Hera into the gunship and pushes the gunship away from the explosion to save it. And you see his eyes come back so that he can see Hera. And then the screen just goes straight to that white ending. And that's it. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's that episode, you know, it's, it's not any longer than normal, but to me, it almost felt like, like two episodes. Uh, because there's, you know, there's the whole, there's the whole rescue going on, which was pretty sweet, uh, very creative, um, and <laughs> Hera just being high as a kite was very entertaining. Like I said, there's not a lot of levity in this season, but there is some in this episode. Very entertaining. I thought that was a good touch. It showed a different side of Hera, like a really soft, um... She's always caring, but it feels like she's always got her guard up or she's always in like leadership mode or captain mode. Yeah. And that's all like a more innocent side of Hera that I don't think we'd really ever seen prior to that. I thought that that was a very sweet touch. I agree. Um, Yeah, I think it really opened Hera's character up to us as an audience. Um, And so that was good. And then, yeah, just this, just this wildly unexpected finale. Now you can hindsight is twenty twenty, right? And you can look back and you can say, "Oh man, of, of course this was how it was going to end." Like this was so so clearly foreshadowed, but it's not that clear the first time through. Um, what's going to happen? Now, I I did feel like Kanan was preparing to go somewhere, but I thought he was going to physically like go somewhere to do something. Like go to Dagobah to meet Yoda or something. Yeah, like, that. like, like or like, confront Thrawn personally, or you know, I, I thought we were we were building up a little bit more. I did not see this coming, but it ended up being perfect. Like I, I legitimately got chills when I watched that last scene. It was good, and and the opening scene to Doom, which is when they get back to the base, is heart wrenching. Like the anger and how hurt Hera is and like even Chopper holding Hera's hand with his little pincers like 
I thought it was such a beautiful scene and her being like, why didn't I tell him sooner? Like, I thought we had more time, like echoed my feelings as a viewer where I was like, I thought we had more time. I, I mean, I knew eventually he was going to sacrifice himself because that's kind of the way the Jedi art goes. But I thought it was going to happen at the end of the season. I didn't think it was going to happen midway through the season in that way. It, it was heartbreaking. And Ezra's angry. Sabine is angry. Zeb is angry. They all kind of splinter, right? And they go off and do their own things. Ezra gets chased by the wolves. He's not even sure why he's running, but they're chasing him. So he runs and Zeb and Sabine go to blow up something because that's how they cope. And Hera just sits in the room with what remains of Kanan's possessions and is just sad, right? It's, it's really, really a heartbreaking scene. Yeah. Um, but I loved how they transitioned from, from this loss to here's what you can do about it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I love the, uh, Kind of, kind of toward the end of this episode, uh, we hear that Kanan's sacrifice didn't just save them. Um, essentially, by by painting a target on those fuel tanks, he more or less kills the Tide Defender project and effectively saves the rebellion from what could have been a a weapon that they would not have been able to keep up with. And we saw, we've seen multiple times now how effective the TIE Defenders were. Um, and the Empire has the funds to mass-produce them um, if they're directed Thrawn's way and not toward Project Stardust. Um, but this, this loss is so great um, that it actually... I mean, it, it reflects poorly on Thrawn. It makes it look like he can't keep his project uh, under control. He can't defend it from a motley group of rebels um, that he supposedly was going to annihilate. Uh, and, you know, it, it puts multiple, th- multiple failures at Thrawn's feet, which the Emperor, you know, does not, does not take kindly to. Um, so Kanan's sacrifice has massive consequences for the future of the galaxy, even if it goes largely unknown outside of his his immediate circle of friends. Yeah. Um, and Governor Price, being the fool that she is, tries to cover it up by saying, oh, well, we can't run the plants, uh, but here's an excuse for why we're not running the plants. We're going to have a parade. And if all the workers are at the parade, it makes sense that the plants are closed. And Thrawn just immediately sees through that. He's like, did you seriously expect that a parade would make me think that that's the reason why the plants weren't running? Uh, so Kanan's sacrifice has multiple, multiple benefits, but also at the same time, we hear the Emperor say the death of Caleb Doom has changed Lothal's fate in what way I do not know. Like he has now thrown a wrench into the Emperor's plans, which leads to Wolves in a Door and A World Between Worlds, which are two fantastic episodes where they basically revisit the Jedi temple and find that it has been disassembled. The the Sith are taking it apart to try to study it because they know that inside the temple is a power. Uh, it's, it's insinuated that Palpatine understands what it is, uh, but the minister Hayden or whatever he has that's there, they they're unable to open it. And of course, Sabine and Ezra go and Sabine kind of sacrifices herself, meaning lets herself get captured to give Ezra time. Ezra is able to open it and Ezra is able to access the world between worlds, even though he doesn't know what it is. 
my favorite part of this episode. Number one, the animation is beautiful. Like the cave paintings as they move. Yeah. Fantastic job on that animation. Very good. But my favorite part of this episode is him being in the world between worlds and hearing all of the quotes said from different periods of time in Star Wars. They're from all of them. They're from the sequels, the prequels, the original trilogy, from Clone Wars. There's quotes from all of those. And they play in the background. And the first time I watched it, I tried to catch them all. The second time I turned the subtitles on so that I could actually read them. It's fantastic. Maz, Kylo Ren, uh, Obi-Wan, Anakin, Ahsoka, they're all Yoda, they're all saying stuff. And I loved the quotes that they chose to include in that. Every single one of them feels so powerful and so meaningful. Yeah. This is a, a really great build-up um, toward the end, and it's it's the final step along Ezra's path to becoming the Jedi that he's meant to be. Um, he has he's grown a lot over Rebels, um, but he's always had Kanan there to lean on. Kanan to rein him in and check him. Um, Kanan to you know to push him forward when he needs to be pushed, and you know now for the first time he has to stand on his own as a Jedi, um, and he has to make choices that are going to be consequential. Um. And I think I think what he learns is that uh, that he doesn't have Kanan anymore, but he's still but he's not alone, right? Um, he realizes that he can lean on everyone, um, that they're that they're all there for him. They all have his back, um, and I, he sort of knows that. But I think Kanan was always always a, kind of a different relationship, um, where he was always the lesser. He was always the the student. Um, and here I feel like this is when he becomes a Jedi Knight, when he stops being a Padawan. Yeah, I I, I agree, and it it shows. It's almost very similar to the part in Rise of Skywalker, which I actually thought was a good part, but it's where Ray hears all the Jedi, like we are all the Jedi in you, and so Ezra hears Qui Gon, Anakin, Yoda, the father, the daughter, he hears Jin or so, Chirrut. Kanan, Leia, Maz, Finn, Ray, Poe, and Kylo Ren. He hears all of them, right? It's beautiful. And World Between Worlds is another really fantastic episode, but him exploring the world between worlds and actually saving Ahsoka. We see now what happens after Ahsoka pushes Ezra out and the, and the temple and she's fighting Vader. Yep. And she sees that she was going to sacrifice herself to kill Vader. She slams her lightsabers into the floor and the floor starts to shatter under her and Vader raises his lightsaber for the killing blow. And Ezra just instinctively reaches through the portal and grabs her and pulls her through it and vader misses the swing and i i got chills at that scene too because up until that point in time like you didn't know what had happened to ahsoka you just assumed that vader had killed her and like feloni had kind of hinted to the fact that she was something had happened to her but you weren't sure if it was her becoming part of the force and death the way kanan did or it was something else but I love that scene. I thought it was fantastic. And then you know that Palpatine knows where they are. He sees them both. He's able to look into the world between worlds, even if he can't get in. Yeah. And he tries to capture them. I loved a world between worlds. I think it's up there with Jedi Knight um, as just like one of the greatest episodes that the show has produced. Yeah, this was a. I feel like this is like the epitome of rebels episodes where it's it's something completely different and yet something that's very star wars 
Um, I just, I really, really loved it. Uh, which I feel like is, is maybe indicative of the journey that Rebels takes us on. Because this is, you know, I, I say completely different, and I truly mean it. Like, this is very much not what we saw in the original trilogy. And yet at the same time, there are so many familiar echoes. You know, we see the story played out again and again, um, where there's temptation and there's the opportunity to seize what you want and um, to uh, to kind of put yourself on this level where you have the power to over life and death and, and the power to to save the lives of those you love. But in order to do the right thing, sometimes you have to not exercise that power. We see it with uh, with Luke in the original trilogy, right? He turns away from the dark side. He has the power to save his friends. The Emperor offers it to him, and he refuses. And that was that's what makes him the the Jedi Knight that he is. And here, I feel like we see an echo of that with Ezra, where he's confronted by the Emperor, um, and. He realizes, uh, with with Ahsoka's help, that sometimes you have to let go, and that that's that's maybe why the Jedi avoid attachments because it allows them to see more clearly sometimes what has to be done. That that's a that's a hard scene to watch. The scene where he sees Kanan and he realizes he could save Kanan, but if he did, he would lose everything else. Yeah, because Kanan put himself in that situation because he knew that's what had to be done to save his friends. And if Ezra were to try to save him, then he would be wasting Kanan's sacrifice, basically. Um, and then the the actual the last scene of A World Between Worlds is just an absolutely beautiful scene. But Kanan, uh, sorry, Ezra falls unconscious basically, and he hears Kanan's voice say, "The Force will be with you always." Straight goosebumps right there. Yeah. Beautiful. He wakes up and realizes that the temple has completely sunk into the ground. It's entirely gone. Every remnant of what the Sith were doing there has been wiped away by the temple's collapse. And he sees the white Lothwolf and he says goodbye, Kanan. And it shows you that he has accepted that Kanan is gone and that Kanan's sacrifice was what allowed them to do what he does next. But he says that Kanan taught him one more lesson and this is where you start to realize that ezra knows what he's going to have to do and that leads into kind of the final arc of the season which is the fool's hope and family reunion and farewell fool's hope is mostly an episode that's just them getting all of the characters back together and them setting up the plan that allows them to try to take the capital and liberate the capital where they basically they pretend Ryder azadi pretends like he's betraying the rebels to lure governor price out into the rebel base and uh, and they call the ghost back to Lothal. And as soon as they do all that stuff, uh, there's a huge fight. There's, you know, uh, a, a trap that they spring, even though it seems like the trap was sprung on them. Um, finish finish uh, talking about that episode, but I do want to jump back to World Between Worlds briefly before we go into the finale, because I think, um, I don't know, I, I I feel like I just have something else to say about that episode. Go for it. Speak away. Okay. Uh, so, you know, obviously we see, you know, in this uh, in this kind of wolves in a door in a world between worlds, we see this callback to the Mortis gods 
um, you know, where they are, it's their portraits there, and these portraits are sort of animated. Um, and there are things going on in Lethal that are beyond what any normal Jedi can do, so far as we know, right? Traveling uh, across a planet um, with, you know, a, a fairly short jog, um, and then this gateway to a world between worlds. There's a lot of stuff going on that that seems to be outside of the realm of what's possible for a normal Jedi. And the implication, I think, is super strong that this is where the Mortis gods were before they went to Mortis. Um, that they were tinkering and experimenting on Lethal. And that that is part of what makes Lethal so special. And that's why the Emperor uh, has taken such a keen interest in it. Is because he knows that they're, that, that true mastery of the force was exercised here that people who could do anything that they could imagine walked uh that planet and changed it um and he's he's seeking that power uh and i i i feel like this is both following the mortis arc and also giving us a kind of a a little vision into the backstory of that um perhaps the uh the father recognized that they had gone too far in in whether or not they created the world between worlds or they simply found a way to access it that this was a power that no one should have um and that that's part of why they were in that sort of uh you know that that sort of self-inflicted exile that they were in on mortis because he could not control uh the daughter and the son, if they were kind of left to their own devices in the wider universe, he needed to keep them contained. Um, and so I feel like it's just this sort of like, you know, and who knows how long ago this happened, how long this secret temple has been here. The implication I think is thousands upon thousands of years, likely predating the Republic. Um, so it's, I, it's just, it's very trippy. It's very wild. And I love it. I just yeah. I wanted to make sure that if you go in and you watch these episodes or you watch them again, um, that you maybe kind of bear some of that in mind because I think thinking about that history makes it that much more powerful and, and enjoyable. Yeah, and even uh, Filoni talks about in like the making of for that episode, like he confirms that Lucas was the one who invented the Mortis gods, like to further drive home the point that like. He didn't just pull a bunch of weird shit out of his butt. Like this was Lucas's idea for a lot of this stuff. Um, yeah. Fool's hope is basically just the setup to the finale. Fool's hope is them capturing governor price and forcing her to go back to the city and pretend like she's victorious, but really all the prisoners are an invading force that is going to activate a plan to pull all of the troops back for a planetary evacuation. They're going to lock them in the central dome, which has orbital capabilities and they're going to launch the dome up. Well, unfortunately for them, Thrawn, is already aware of what they're trying to do and parks his ship directly over it. So if they were to launch, they would hit Thrawn's ship and it would come crashing down on the city and it would kill all the civilians. So they can't do it. And then he sends Ruck in there because Ruck has somehow survived being thrown off a cliff like three goddamn times in the previous episode. Uh, he sends Ruck to disable the shield generators so that they can't protect the city and he threatens an orbital bombardment of the city. Um, 
which of course he says that the only condition he will uh, accept to not destroy the city is Ezra Bridger's unconditional and immediate surrender. Yeah. So Ezra, obviously Hera, nobody wants him to leave, but he shares a glance with Sabine being like, I have to go because Ezra has already foreseen that this was what was going to happen. This is when you understand that Ezra's no one's going to happen because he told Mart, who's back at the base, like, hey, Thrawn's going to come back before we're able to launch. You need to go up into the atmosphere and you need to broadcast a signal on frequency zero, which apparently is a frequency that nobody uses. And it's a homing beacon. And like, you need to broadcast this symbol uh, to call reinforcements for us, right? And at the time, Wolf is like, what reinforcements would possibly be on that frequency? And he, he doesn't explain the answer. But yeah. he goes up and he surrenders himself to Thrawn and Thrawn takes him to a hologram of the Emperor, which is disguised as like his old benevolent self from the prequels. And the the Emperor tries to convince uh, tries to convince Ezra to open the gateway for him so that he can get his parents back. And I thought that this was a great scene because it shows what Ezra originally longed for as a child when they first found him. And it shows the growth that Ezra has overtaken over the show that that's not what he wants anymore. He realizes there are bigger things than that. In season one, he would have given anything to have his parents back. Yep. But now he understands that there's a bigger goal and bigger powers at play. And he can't, like Kanan, he has to make a sacrifice to save other people. And I think, you know, coming into this episode for the first time, part of what makes that scene really enjoyable is that there's a moment when you when you think, he might do it. Um, and then... You know, just a few moments later, you're like, no, no, he's, there's no way he's falling for this. Um, and it's, it's because his character has grown so tremendously because season one version of Ezra would have done it in a heartbeat. Season two version of Ezra might've hesitated, probably still would have done it. Mm -hmm. You know, season three, I don't know, but season four Ezra, he's come into his own. At long last. Season three, the first two episodes, he would have done oh, it yeah. when he was like influenced by the dark side. No, no hesitation there. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, it's great to see Ezra come into his own as a Jedi Knight. Um, and I feel like a big, you know, this is his big moment, right? This is his big confrontation. This is what he's meant to do to help the rebellion win. Um, is is take one of the empire's greatest weapons out of the picture which is exactly what he does the scene is great the the finale scene where ezra escapes from what are some really cool troopers a trooper design i don't know that we've seen before they're like the red imperial troopers but they have these special staffs that float him up in the air but he's at this point he's too strong and he is able to throw the remains of the temple against all the troopers. And I, I really liked that part. I thought that was pretty neat. It was cool. Uh, what cracked me up there is that even when he's like being held in midair, they still can't the shoot stormtroopers <laughs> still can't hit him. <laughs> yeah. God bless stormtroopers. Terrible aim. Right. So he, uh, he escapes, he gets to the bridge and he tells Thrawn like, Oh, you've lost. And they start hearing all this radio chatter. Like, sir, the blockade is just gone. The ships aren't there anymore. There's nothing left. And he calls one of the captains and the captain says, they came out of nowhere. We couldn't stop them. And then he just gets cut off. Yeah. And he's like, look out the window and you see the pergils come or the pergils coming down. And that's the reinforcements that he called, which 
I thought it was great because Ezra's character the entire time we've seen has always had a connection with animals specifically. Mm-hmm. The loath cats and the wolves and the Minox and the Pergils. Like he's always had a connection with animals. So the way he defeats Thrawn is a way that only he could have defeated Thrawn. Yeah. That wasn't something that every Jedi could do. It was something that he could do as a Jedi. And the Pergil come down and they latch onto the ship and they break through the windows and they're holding Thrawn in their grasp, which reflects back to what he was told on Adalon, which is I see defeat embracing you like many cold tentacles, right? Which is a great, great throwback to that. Yeah. And then they start to glow and you know what happens when the Pergil glow. Yeah. Um, so this, this was, look, we know, we all know that I kind of have an issue with, uh, messing with the rules of how hyperspace works in Star Wars. Um, I was okay with it here because it was an animal doing it instinctively. (laughs) And so I felt like, okay, maybe there's some wiggle room there where like they can do something that, you know, normal people can't because, because they're doing, they're, they've evolved to have this this ability uh and there's probably some connection to the force uh allowing them to uh to kind of cheat a little bit uh and so that's i i kind of hand waved it that way in my mind i don't know if anybody else came to a similar conclusion out there or not i just figured pearls could do what they want yeah uh, they're they're spacefaring whale squids they can probably do whatever it is that they want yeah. but I, I thought the scene where Hera and Sabine realize what's happening and they realize that Ezra is going to jump, basically, and they don't know where he's going to go and he's sacrificing himself. Like, they realize it and there's a bit of panic where they're like, get out of there. And he's like, no, like, I have to see, th- I have to see this through. And then, you know, remember he told Sabine, like, I can always count on you. And he basically sacrifices himself he's like you know the force will be with you and he's gone and thrawn's gone and the entire imperial fleet is gone and there's like this shocked silence afterwards that i f- felt like i was like sympathizing with the character it was yeah like, holy shit it's the first time i watched it there was a zero percent chance that i would have guessed that that's how it would end and then wolf says like was was this the plan there's no imperial ships left they're all gone yeah and they launched the dome and detonate the dome over the ocean so it falls down which by the way is very reminiscent of how they destroy the death star right even to the shape of it yeah uh and also sabine's like a mass murderer now because there were thousands of people in the dome that she just sent to a horrible horrible death but i guess they kind of deserved it you know it's uh it's war and sabine's a warrior um mm-hmm. so <sighs> i don't know if you can call it murder i mean it was it was sort of Either the Imperials or them, right? It was a war crime. Yeah. We just call it that. She'd be tried by a tribunal. But they, yeah, they were all it, soldiers. It, there were no there were no civilians yeah. in there. You're saying there weren't any civilian contractors just hanging out? People who were just, you know, repair the toilets and stuff? Uh nope. Those no. were also Imperial officers. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> then it goes to the epilogue, which I think some people had some issues with the epilogue. I didn't. I freaking love the epilogue. They talk about how they prepared for an attack on Lothal. But it never came because the Emperor has other things to deal with because now the other rebel- the other uh, parts of the Rebellion are like acting up, right? And so Lothal is emancipated, it's freed, and there's the Emperor's turn to focus elsewhere because he has problems now, like real problems. The other Death Star is about to be destroyed and, you know, Rogue One is happening concurrently, basically. So it, it talks about Zeb shows Callus like, look, I know that this is a guilt you've been carrying with you. Like, you believed you wiped out my species. No, like, we have a planet. 
you you did not destroy us like you can let that part of yourself go you can forgive yourself for that um they confirmed that Hera and commander rex were both on the battle of endor which i think was pretty cool, was a, cool. a wild fan theory is that commander rex is the old guy in the original trilogy um that you see briefly on endor like a, there's an old guy with a white beard they kind of confirm that that's him i think in actual canon that is not him but he was there for that uh like which obviously it says here and then uh Hera has a child which is jason Sindula, which is obviously the child of Kanan, which was kind of weird to me because like obviously they had to have fucked to have a kid but like <laughs> wow. it, it made a point that they were like that they like hadn't said that i love you or anything until like right before he died and like it made a point that they had only kissed like twice so i was like okay well they were just playing that up for the children but like clearly they did way more than that all the time <laughs> unless there's some way unless he force impregnated her like anakin supposedly did but i was like okay well so i guess the whole like i love you and like them kissing was just for show because clearly they've kissed many times before if they have a child i don't, I don't think we <laughs> because, need to get into what goes on what goes on on the ghost stays on the ghost and uh, then the the actual best scene like ever is the scene where sabine is looking at the painting that she made of the whole family of Zeb and Kanan and Hera and her and Ezra. And it shows that she's saying like, I used to think that he said, I can count on you to protect Lothal and its people. But I realized that there was more to it than that. And she turns around and Ahsoka is there like a much, an older version of Ahsoka with like the white cloak on and everything. And they walk out together and get on a shuttle and fly away. And you know that it's the beginning of their mission to go find Ezra, which of course is where the Ahsoka show is supposed to pick up. Yep. So holy crap, if that, if like it closing on that scene right there, like if I had needed anything else to make this, the series finale of rebels, one of my favorite arcs ever, uh, that just like cemented it there as like, it was perfect. 10 out of 10. Yeah, this was a, this was a really phenomenal finale. Um, you know, I mentioned before that we see practically every character, um, that was original to rebels get, Get sort of their their final due. Uh, Governor Price goes down with her ship. She finally finds her backbone just in time to die with the rest of the Imperials. Um, and you know what? I it it was it was both uh, classically stupid on her part, and also I sort of respected it. Um, yeah, I, I think it was dumb, but at the same time, I'm like, well, at least she finally found something that she believed in, even if it was the wrong thing. Hey, she found some loyalty at the very end. Yeah, you know. Um, uh, we see, we see, uh, <clears throat> we see Milch finally get his moment to shine. After I thought Milch should have died. I, you know, I thought they should have killed him. Milch has been an annoying character to me to begin with. <laughs> I'm not sure if he's like Hondo's like lover or like what the weird relationship is that they have because it kind of insinuated that at some points. Like, I guess these are just best friend and crew, but. Like even Hera was like, I'm sure you have a very special relationship with Melch. And I was like, they, they barely killed anyone. They killed Gregor. Yeah. And obviously Ezra, but like they should have at least killed Melch. Like to have some stretch of being like, Hey, there are real consequences here. I, I was a little surprised that Melch didn't die. Um, I, I will say that this really felt like a turning the corner for Hondo. Um, that he's still at this point, he's practically a pirate in name and method only. Yeah, um, his, and he's a rebel at heart and a good person at heart. Yeah, um, and we we had seen throughout Rebels some pretty questionable decisions on his part, um, and 
And that is uh, kind of brought to a close here, as it is for so many other characters. So anyway, yeah. fantastic all finale. All, fantastic finale, fantastic season. What do you rate the season out of 10? Ooh, this is, uh, this is really, really difficult um, because it's all so good. I, I want to give it like a nine and a half. So controversial here. I think it's better than season seven of Clone Wars. I think Siege of wow. Mandalore raised season seven up a significant amount. Okay. But when you look at it as a whole, I would give it, if it weren't for the first two arcs, I would give it a 10, like flat out a 10. Um, because the first two arcs are part of it, and I don't think I can discount those, I think I got to give it a 9.5. But I believe that that puts it on par with season two as the best series of Star Wars animated television out there. It just might. Yeah, it was it was really, really good. Just consistent quality throughout. And like you said, it was helped by not having a ton of episodes. It, it, this is one of the few times where having fewer episodes actually was hugely beneficial to the season, I think. Yeah. I felt like they learned from the final season of Clone Wars here. That yeah. if you only have a few, make them good. All right, guys. Well, actually, the final season of Clone Wars learned from them because the final season of Clone Wars oh, came true. out after. The, so, it didn't, yeah. so it didn't learn from anyway. Anyway, no, they they should have learned they from them. And they learned. didn't. They went yeah. with fewer episodes, but unfortunately, one of the You're arcs right. was yeah. a weaker arc. But yeah, oh, all well. right, guys, we got to roll out. I got uh, I got some stuff to do today. We'll get this up hopefully Monday morning for you guys. And thanks for tuning in. And I guess we'll see you uh, the next time we do an episode. It'll probably be on. It'll probably be on the Mandalorian. If I had to guess, right? Seems right. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Bye. Peace.